Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will remain commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Season 2. The sequel. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil. Where? A historian. And a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Mommy? Sorry. Mommy? Sorry. Mommy? Will we Sorry. ever see more Mommy? of this mysterious Sorry. warden of Mommy? the West? And E.E. can't possibly expect us to keep track of all these names, right? Uh, I don't know. Squire and Wizard of the West seem like the only important ones so far. Can't drop a pin in Prosser without hitting royalty. Elusha Vokor, Nicaean ambassador to the Principate. Well, we are here. This is book two. We're through book one. Cordelia's here. Cordelia Hassenbach is here. My future wife, my mother, my destroyer, my love, my everything. She is. She comes on the scene strong. This entire prologue is dedicated to her perspective, which is phenomenal. We always love a good Cordelia perspective chapter. Um, and this is our real introduction to her. We learn a little bit about the uh, Halloween rebellion led by Billiam from the Proser perspective. We get a little bit of background on the, uh, the Proser and civil wars that have been going on. We gain some appreciation for how talented Militia is, and we kind of just vibe with Cordelia for most of the chapter, frankly. Cordelia and the second greatest Prosserin of all time, her dear uncle, Klaus, who is a wonderful foil to her. Uh, all of my honest obsession aside, their interplay is of two close and loving allies with completely different expertises, completely different angles completely different means and a shared goal and shared appreciation we i mean we get that that's kind of a, a running theme with cordelia because she exists on her own as an incredible character but as in contrast and opposition to other characters the entire time she always has somebody whether it's her uncle or as we start to see here but see more going on militia and later in the story cat um and so we always get to see cordelia's strengths and hug your ears weaknesses how dare you highlighted by her current foil or rival depending on exactly where in the story we are we stand a multi-perspectivite queen and by queen i mean prince that will be important before we get to my everything i do want to note something about the epigraph which is the name of this Nicene ambassador to the Principate. The name Eleusis is attested. It's a she's a demi deity of some kind. I read the previews Google gave me when I looked it up because DuckDuckGo failed me. I'm not a chump who uses Google as a default. But Eleusia, Elusha, Aloysia, Eleusia doesn't seem to really appear anywhere. And I just think that's interesting. Except as the Nicene ambassador to the Principate, of course. Well, yes. What I'm saying is, this is first of her name, or his name, or their name, or otherwise. I 
The thing about names is they often clue you into a speaker's gender. This does not in any way. Of course, the thing about titles is they often clue you into the holder's gender. The first lines of this chapter, the first time I read this, took me a moment. Cordelia Hassenbach, first Prince of Prosser, idly glanced at her paperweight and pondered how satisfying it would be pondered how satisfying it would feel to break Prince Amadis's nose with it. Amazing start, I wish that were me, etc., etc. But Cordelia, feminine, first prince, masculine, glanced at her paperweight, feminine. Is this an issue of EE is not similarly native speaker as I am, and this is something leaking through? Is this a typo on one end or another? Should it be first princess? Should it be his? It's, but Cordelia it seems like a feminine name, but you know, Alusha isn't a name I know. Maybe this is, you know, Mr. Mr. Cordelia, the blah, blah, blah. It took me a moment, and I think it's intended to. This time, it's just making me happy. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this chapter, this prologue here, does get into that specific thing a bit later on. And so we will talk about it, because there are some uh, interesting pieces of Kalernian history to, to discuss in relation to that specific thing. And... It takes a moment for us to get introduced to who Cordelia really is, not just what she is, but who. Because we see she's in a situation where she's doing politics and she doesn't like her interlocutor. Totally normal stuff, really easy to get introduced to a character like this. Pretty standard situation for people to be in. But we get introduced to the pieces of her piecemeal. First, okay, she's the first prince, so high title. Another prince is annoying her, and then she might have called the man's tone whiny if one cared to pass such a judgment, but properly raised ladies like Cordelia did not venture such opinions out loud. Oh, so she's fancy and etiquette and probably some wilting flower sealed away in the castle, right? But we go on. For all that Southerners were convinced that the Lycanese were one bad harvest away from barbarism, manners had been drilled into her from an early age. Okay, so she's a fancy proper lady from maybe a more rural or provincial people, I suppose. That's what we get so far. And you must admit, none of that assessment, none of that immediate judgment is wrong, but it's hardly the whole picture. That would deeply undersell my beloved Hassenbach. Yeah, on a first read-through, Cordelia's opening chapter, or opening paragraphs, they don't tell us much, and this could easily be read as, ah, here's the squabbles of those weirdos out west, and she's just queen weirdo, or whatever, but... Not queen, not queen! Yeah, I'm just saying, when you're reading through this, the first time, before you understand how it's important, and there isn't a lot here to tell you exactly how important what's going on in this scene is or how important these two characters are and by two i of course mean klaus and cordelia not uh not modest here um but by the end of the chapter you can definitely pick up that there's something more going on characters are going to heavily affect the um the politics of callow of Prace, of colernia at whole uh, as a whole and so it's a it's a great introduction to go from yep she's fancy and maybe a barbarian to oh okay she's very important and that she's important in the abstract is clear or possibly not her as a person for all we know now we know better but important as a figure important as the embodiment of the state let's be real what do we know of Prosser well it's out somewhere turns out to be west it's good and had a civil war but last time i had seen this state was after it had been absolutely corpsed by the dead king it had shattered it had suffered it had bled it had rotted it had withered prosser was a ruin when all non-epilogue books ended and now we come back to here and the way it seems so mighty and self-important the prince speaking to cordelia says if these Callowan paupers insist on taking Prosser and gold, it is only fitting that they should be led by a Prosser and commander. Amadis finished, Amadis finished the smugly self-satisfied smirk on his face, tempting Cordelia's hand to drift towards the paperweight. Oh, Prosser, the rich nation. 
Which I suppose it is in general. It's a big wealthy nation because it's the great nation on the continent, really. Even though it's a nation of three nations. So maybe that's a bad word choice, especially in a free or non-Westphalian world. But when I think money now, I think Mercantus. I think Precy Gold. I think Mercantus or Precy Gold. That's the sum of it. Dwarves, maybe. Sure. And this is such a different view, but it's not wrong. Prosser is more populous than everyone. It's wealthier than everyone but the money states. And that's cool. And that's a great reminder. And I'm thankful that EE wrote this with us in mind. Yeah, it is tough to come back and remember that despite the fact that by word count, the vast majority of the guide, maybe not the vast majority, by word count, the majority of the time that Prosser's on screen, it is burning and besieged. But yeah, this is before all of that. Now it's done being, now it's done burning for a little bit. It had its burn time and it's, 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 uh, Prosser ascendant for a bit. And Cordelia still in the wax of her power as she attempts to bring things under control. She's recently ascended to the highest seat of the highest assembly. She's wrangling her princess now, which will never, ever, ever stop the poor woman. No. And here she needs to cow Amadis. She lets silence linger on long enough that it can be uncomfortable. But the important thing is she does nothing untoward ever in the entire series. And her uncle, meanwhile, sitting there, Uncle Klaus, stares, pardon, glares at the prince until he's until he shifts uncomfortably. Uncle Klaus glares at the prince until he shifts uncomfortably. All still very soft exercises of power. This is not Catherine, but a very useful use of good prince, bad soldier. I would accuse neither of them of being cops. Right. Though they do both have blood on their hands, but I like them. Key difference. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, they definitely, like, like we were saying, they definitely have different approaches to this. And some of that is that Klaus views things as a general. Everything is setting up for a battle, and the battle gets you the results you want. Uh, the, the, Conflict is on the battlefield, whereas for Cordelia and most of the politicians, most of the leadership of Proser, the battle is this concept that we see show up a number of times uh, when Proser perspective is examined, um, this ebb and flow, um, which is sort of uh, the great game kind of idea of the politics of these many disparate factions and people groups and far-flung far flung principalities uh, all vying for supremacy within Proser. Um, but it's, despite the, the term ebb and flow here, it's not something that is ridden or, I'm not sure, broken through or, or something you swim in. You, there's a lot, of, a lot of verbs that could be used here. Cordelia says it's played, that the Alamans rulers have spent so long playing the ebb and flow. It's even at the highest level with somebody who internally critiques other people for not thinking of the peasantry. It's a game. It's it's a political game. It's a it's a competition between individuals. And I don't know the the guy definitely uh, can definitely get away with <laughs> having a pretty explicit great man theory style of government and history because names. Um, and stories being so important, but it's definitely, uh, you definitely can see that very, you can see the beginnings of that here or in, in the, on the pro-certain side of things where, yeah, all the elites are playing this big game with each other to, to take control of who gets the tax money from all the peasants, more or less. The key thing to remember in this setting is that games are really sacralized. We're reading a story that's about one of ultimately i think the guide boils down to being one of the deciding moves or not even deciding moves but one of the major pivots in the game of the gods it's about the game of the gods we have this ebb and flow being portrayed as the game it's traditional to play chatranj while discussing the death of one's enemies in praise as vicious as disregarding as wicked as it would be as it is in real life to see to 
essentialize and to minimize the suffering of such things as mere games. There is nothing mere about a game in this world. Or perhaps if we go back to the, okay, original is a terrible thing to use with language, but the previous meaning of mere, meaning whole or entire, it is something as mere, as entire, as all-encompassing as a game. I think that's really cool. And we see the echoes where it matters. And what else matters is title in a world of names and gender in a world of people who possess gender and also a handful of people who don't, or rather one great people that doesn't. And this people is actually a terrible people too. I don't want to take away the humanity, so to speak, of the drow, but they're they're bad. They're, pr- they're, they're pretty bad. rough. Yeah. <laughs> they're... Until they become an entire species of like rat battlers. The prince decides to just lose any chance he had of gaining any ground in this conversation by saying, with all due respect, first Princess Cordelia, and she immediately corrects him, prince, she corrected flatly, first prince. This is, this is interesting, especially in the guideverse, but he wants to call her a princess, which is typically the feminine form of prince, but she is a prince. That is her title, and she insists upon retaining it. And I think there's a great danger to valorizing women should be treated as equal and therefore they should claim the masculine titles because then implicitly feminine titles are inherently inferior. And why are feminine titles inherently inferior? Well, the only possible reason could be they're feminine, which makes them worse, which then undermines women are equal to men, which is it's a dangerous road to go down. But on the other hand, when women claim the higher esteemed title, or in Cordelia's case, just side with her tradition, even though it is a case of a masculine title being improperly not universalized because it's assumed otherwise, it seems. But all nonetheless, it's a cool thing that can be played badly, but I don't think it is here particularly. And Cordelia is better than any man. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because she is she goes on to think that she is technically the princess of Salia. So princess is one of her titles. You know, she's she's the head of state, more or less, for a pretty big coalition, a pretty big empire, whatever you want to call it here. She's got a mountain of titles, no doubt. Um, but princess belongs to her rulership of Salia, not or her... Or her Princess refers to the fact that Stalia is her domain, I guess, whereas First Prince is the fact that she's, you know, Cordelia and the best. Um, And there's the heritage side of things, like you mentioned, that it's, it's, she's from Renia, where legally speaking, she is Prince. And keeping that isn't just a, an issue of the more prestigious title, it's also an issue of erasure of Renian heritage of, of the the southerners here trying to ignore the fact that they are now ruled by the uh somebody from the north the barbarians of the north they they don't want to acknowledge that fact so they act as though that side of who she is isn't relevant and they want to they want to label her with their own terms they want to think of her in their own context and she's saying no i am Renian. i am lycanese I am the first prince. I am all of those northern things, and I'm also your liege here. And she refuses to let them, especially this guy who she's annoyed with, uh, divide up her titles, her roles as a ruler into convenient chunks, depending on the conversation. She is all of those things. She is the first prince and the princess of Salia and the 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 prince of uh, Renia. She's all of these and, and more. She's Cordelia Hasenbach, and nothing is going to change that. Not even, you know, reality itself when it tries to give her another title that changes some of these things. She says no to that. (laughs) I love her. And the Prince-Princess interplay then becomes really interesting because in many patriarchal societies, the desire to shove the word princess onto Cordelia could be one to minimize her by giving her the feminine and therefore lesser because we're all misogynists here title. But instead, shoving princess on her is to avoid 
classing her as a northerner, which would make us feel diminished because now we're stuck with a northerner ruling us. Please use the girl name so we don't feel like a northerner is in charge, which is hilarious because the northerner is in charge and will always be. And generally speaking to um, just we've talked about this a few times with Prace and Callow, um, it the implication here is that a woman ruling Renia is a recent development. I, not, uh, it doesn't say whether or not Cordelia is the first woman to be in charge. It doesn't seem to be that that's the case, since the word never is used here to say the laws have never been officially amended. Um, but it's sort of another example, similar to the War College, of non pracy gender inequalities being nudged towards disappearing um we've we talked about the war college and how incredibly recently it went from being male only um and early on we talked how colonia is pretty equitable between genders in a lot of places but here we're seeing two major states Prace and proser only recently becoming that and so it's the timeline there is pretty interesting to keep track of that it's not as though Colonia has, for its entire history, been this beacon of, of equality among genders, but rather that it's moving in that direction very recently. And yet very effectively. Oh, Considering sure. some of these places, Prace, are within a generation. Renia's within memory, at least, within recent history. And we live in a world where, well, full equality is in so many places in so many ways not achieved. Even in realms where it is officially how it works, there are so many backward-thinking people who can't even, with the really basic concept of women are people just like, I was going to say just like any other gender, but no, with these people, just like men, the other gender. Uh, it's reflected in, well, you all know the problems of the, of the world we live in, but here... I don't believe Catherine is ever seen as an invalid ruler for her sex. She's an invalid ruler because she's not of the right blood or because she's evil or because she's the arch heretic or because, you know, all those little things. Mm -hmm. But everyone's chill being ruled by a woman. Of course, Callow does have a tradition of that. Right. With queens. But nonetheless, general, I don't think her legionaries complain. And nor should they. Sorry, general? Yes, general. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Which is all to say, the present state of gender equality in the guide, having been a change from the history of the guide, but now being so complete, feels maybe like it's authorially forced. But it's a good feeling. I like reading this world, and I don't mind. Yeah, I mean, there's also a place where gender equality, if you stretch that definition a little bit, is seems to have been historically always there and that's in that there isn't even a quirked eyebrow if somebody isn't you know this hat it's in the guide with when somebody shows up and is bi or gay the the response is basically yes like a normal person you know so it, it that doesn't that doesn't have the feeling of being a recent development um which i only mentioned because that kind of uh the kind of acceptance that uh, non cishet folks are beginning to experience in some places, and I understand that that is uh, a far cry from full acceptance. In the real world, that kind of that that acceptance developed alongside uh, gender rights in a lot of places, just because there's a general progressive movement, I guess, and intersectionality is the main way that rights are gained. Um, and so seeing that for Colonia, now nah, we don't really care what sexuality or, you know, where, where your sexuality lies, go for it, dog. Women, though, we're still, we're working on that. We're getting there. It's just a, it's, it's one of those places where there was a clear decision made on, on these issues. It's, there's no assumptions made on how those rights developed in Colonia from a, a authorial standpoint. It's not, well, you know, it's like our real world. There's just, it's a different development because those two things are developing much in a much different order and pace than in our world. And so you can you can see the decision there, which is, yeah, like you said, it's, it's appreciated. It is, however, wild to me that, 
and I don't know how this reflects with real world societies that were however you can manage to connect it similarly scrabbling for survival but that in Lycanese lands Arenia women had traditionally not been able to rule when both in that hard scrabble society against the chain of hunger everyone is trained to fight everyone is expected to fight everyone will fight and everyone will die fighting and there's no room for gender distinction there which means why is there a gender distinction in rulership and if there were a gender distinction and everyone can fight will fight and must fight so meaning and that distinction were instead which it is not only men do then there would be so many cases where women end up the ruler like in uh, medievals or not medieval i suppose that would be renaissance renaissance era silesia where women ascended to the throne because well their husbands were dead and their sons were babies so time to be a regent for however long it takes until you can send your son off somewhere else so you can hold on a little longer because frankly he's a fool and you're not well maybe maybe the inverse of that is the case in renia and that there was no law uh, specifically against women ruling but just by happenstance for all of renian history the you know the firstborn child was always a man by sheer happenstance or the women were too brave and so they were dying on the front lines against the chain too frequently to inherit you know maybe it was just bad luck <laughs> for all of its history huh maybe <laughs> seems i yeah <laughs> oh, you know speaking of bad luck we've got I mean, look at a real-world situation where there is, so to speak, bad luck, except nobody should be a monarch. But in, quote-unquote, Great Britain, now that the laws are amended to allow uh, gender-blind ascension to the throne, the current wretch is Chuck, and then his son is in line, and then his son is in line. It's just bad luck in this case. Yeah. Also bad luck who they are and what they are, but, you know. Just sort of generally, yeah. But everybody fights up north. And yet the Lycanese were made part of Prosser by conquest, which were they just all looking the other way at the time? Were they they were pinned between a rock and a hungry place, but I mean, most of their fortifications are north and east, and most of the invasion of the rest of Prosser would have come from the south and kind of southwest. So yeah, maybe? Just wild. Because I would trust three Lycanese against a score of Arlesites any day. Oh, for sure. At least right now. Well, maybe not right now. Generally, I would. And I would hold them to be the best regardless of time period. But, you know, the swords have been wetted across the land. Wetted and wetted. Please check the spelling on that one. In a Spanish class I once took. Maybe it was my... No, not my literature course. In some Spanish course I took in college. When we were looking at the conquest of Latin America, there were important differences in the technologies held by the two civilizations. But one of the advantages ascribed to the Spanish were that they had just finished the so-called Reconquista and driven out the Caliphate the same year, more or less, that New World exploration began. And so they had some of the most vicious, most trained, most practiced soldiers in the world at the time. And I have not since looked up anything or studied much about the era at all, but that effect feels like it might be in place for all of Prosser at this time. They've just finished the Uncivil Wars, but if they want to stay sharp, they'll need to find another battle to consume the entire Principate. I hope they can find one. Getting a little ahead of ourselves there, but yeah, I I think they'll manage. Um, Speaking of getting ahead of ourselves, we are catching up to ourselves. The next thing that is directly relevant to the story at large um, is that we get uh, Cordelia talking about the uh, the Calloan, well, the rebellion in Calloan, heralded by Billiam, uh, the figurehead of William. Uh, and she, in a nice mirror of William's thoughts on the topic uh, in the epilogue of book one, we see her uh, understanding that while they, the Halloween rebels, would fight for a restored kingdom, they would not bear arms to forge a proser and protectorate. And hers is a 
more peaceful reading of the situation. Ah, they just wouldn't fight for us. Whereas Williams is, I'm willing to kill everyone who serves, who who fights under me to defeat ProServe if they come here after we're done beating up Praise. But, you know, she understands the situation pretty well. And it, it's just, it's I fun to... murder everyone in this room and yeah. then myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it, it's it's nice to see her reading the situation from afar like that. It's, it's just cool. In the from the epilogue to the the next book, how that idea has a through line, even if the exact implementation of it, it varies based on temperament and uh, zealotry. And that's the thing. If I might skip ahead a moment, as they come to after a bunch of conversation, Cordelia's chatting with her uncle. We'll get there. But the important thing is that because the standard of peasantry under Praise is better than it was under the Fairfax dynasty. There's no stomach for rebellion, and Cordelia is afraid that if they wait a few more years, they might actually resist an attempt to liberate them. And I have deep and abiding faith in Cordelia Hassenbach. I will always bet on Cordelia Hassenbach. But at this point, baby Cordelia doesn't understand Callow. I can't imagine Callow not willing to throw off any yoke if it isn't Callowin. It's praise. That's disqualifying. I mean, true to an extent, because Callow is famously the grudge people. But keep in mind that later on in the story, there is real concern that is backed up by more than just the weirdly, zealously, capital G, good people. That Cat's leading of Callow is going to drag Callow towards evil as a whole, like the the itself the pe- all of the people within it and so with enough time race ruling callow could do the same especially given how effective black is at wielding that kind of thing that kind of metaphysical force that kind of narrative weight to get what he wants i can see yeah callow is always going to be down for a fight but give it a couple generations and callow as an entity could be the begrudging but you know overall doing pretty well vassal of praise for all intents and purposes in a way that means that they would fight against Proser because narratively speaking the people of Callow are crazy at this point you know uh Callow they're big on grudges they want to they'll the long price is like their thing but being ruled by an evil head of state does affect the people of uh of a region so I'm I'm pretty sure we came up with the long price. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just a, a term that we like to use that I think applies to Callow. Cordelia sends the prince away and then decides she needs to strike him to teach him not to disagree so directly. It would not do. It undermines all of the function. And so she decides the man was working trade deals in it's probably from French, so cruisins, cruisants. That's got to be French, Cruisant. yeah. Uh, the Germanist in me wants to say Croissants, but no. Sabotaging a lucrative but not politically relevant one of those trade deals should get the point across. And I mean, like, yeah, if he connects it to events. I'm sure you'll give the clues to say it was you without any evidence that it was you. But I don't know. I feel like Cordelia is treating everyone like they're on her level. And I just know I'm not. Well, it's probably more of a Pavlovian thing. She's going to do this, and the next time he disrespects her, something similar happens. And eventually he realizes, there's a, eventually he, maybe doesn't realize, but he has an automatic response. Hmm, if I don't treat the first prince the way I'm supposed to, my trade deals fail, or my taxes don't get collected the way they're supposed to, or one of my allies betrays me. And uh, he'll draw a connection eventually. It's just pattern recognition. So... It's Pavlovian because, just like Pavlov's dogs, or me, every time the first prince punishes him, he starts salivating? Exactly. But she does have to have a relatively firm hand because Prosser's in a bad way. Yeah, we, we find out uh, a pretty cool bit of recent Prosser history. Uh, the Principate has been dealing with civil wars for two decades, uh, the tail end of which is where that we... That doesn't see- sound very civil. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the tail end of which is where we see uh, Cordelia and Klaus taking control, uh, where later on she says 
something about it was time for her to step up. Um, but uh, the important thing here is we learn that the ferocity and longevity of this civil war was fueled by militia funding anybody who got too weak. Because historically speaking in Proser, if you are in a civil war, if a principate starts to fail, they bow out and they sign up with the person who is winning. And that way they don't burn themselves out. Militia was funding those who got weak, so they would continue to stay in the war to drag this on. That makes sense given the timing. Militia had just finished the conquest of Callow. She's got some time on her hands. She can, you know, get her fingers all up in Proser. But the fact that this civil war started 20 years ago, which is if I'm doing my math right, approximately the exact time that the conquest took place. I'm wondering if the Civil War was sparked by more than what uh, Cordelia seems to think. Or if such coincidental timing could be the nature of the world. Or Fair. just a coincidence. But that's a very good question. Really, a very curious coincidence. It would be. And I honestly don't know... If you're reading a story and two things happen at the same time, it's not a coincidence at a meta level. The author made those two things happen at the same time. But within the fiction of the guide, I don't know that I believe in coincidence. I just coincidence is the kind of thing that is the exact kind of power, the exact kind of influence that the gods above and below put on reality. They make the happenstance, the little things nudge so that the big events follow. They they make the butterfly flap its wings at the right time. And I, I don't know. Coincidence is hard to to allow in a story like this, even at the fiction level, not just the the narrative level, the, the authorial level. So that that twenty years stands out uh, pretty firmly. What is uh, what is another interesting thing since you bring it up is the funding of the losing princes by militia's agents, militia's shell company. <laughs> yeah. Is happening after she's taken the reins of the Dread Empire. And you play, you phrased it as she has some time in her hands. But the only place as nasty and cutthroat as the highest assembly in the entire world of the guide is the Precy court. And so in the position Hassenbach currently is in, Militia was manipulating events in a neighboring country, just like Cordelia in the position she's currently in is manipulating the events in the neighboring country, or at the very least taking advantage of the events, which is actually even more accurately what Militia was doing. There's a parallel here between the two hottest women in the guide. All of that said, though, we get the first real reference to one of the more beloved characters of this story, one of one of my personal favorites at the very least. Uh, a reference to Halika and we their... Oh, wait, yes, we do. Never mind. Yeah, we get uh, a reference to... Halika and their tyrant. We don't get any information about him. We don't get any information about what he's doing, where he comes from, what this means, why it's a big deal that there's a tyrant there, but there is, and I cannot wait for more. He's so good, and that's all I have to say about that. So they dismissively mention a tyrant in the Free Cities when they talk about whether they need to worry about them as they do all of their intrigue. We get a reference to the Dominion, as they decide if they have to worry about them, but they don't have to. And then they go into internal affairs. Interesting stuff, nothing worth discussing here, except we get this line. And that, removing lending restrictions, again, for conversations we don't care about here, was not something she could do. Not when her position was still so weak. No power could challenge the newly founded Hassenbach dynasty as of yet. Not with the kind of backing she had. She's dreaming of a dynasty. A dynasty and a princedom, sure, but does the Salia typically stay in a family for long? I mean, I'm sure the Hassenbachs could keep it, but... Yeah, I, I mean, as unhelpful as this is, great question. Uh, when it comes to Proser and history, we get the ancient stuff, we get the Civil War stuff, and we get what's going on right now. And not a lot in between, and not a lot of great detail, so... Uh, I'm giving you a big shrug across the studio right now. But even now, Cordelia is thinking along the same lines that she must at the end. And it's the reason why she's such a good ruler for the horrors of the story. Because she is like Anise. 
she has been at the wall. She is part of the wall. And as she considers how there cannot be another civil war, she thinks, for us, every loss on the field is one less soldier to man the walls when the chain of hunger comes again. One less watcher keeping an eye on the kingdom of the dead. It's fun in these early chapters to see those two things mentioned because they are often they often show up together. They're the two evil eldritch forces at the border of the civilized world that the Lycanese hold back. And it's really cool to know <laughs> that one of these becomes much more narratively important than the other and also much more narratively important than just about anything because it's the big bad of the whole story. Um, but Every time there's a little mention to the Kingdom of the Dead, you know, the place where the, the zombies are, haha. <laughs> it's it's great to look forward to when it actually matters in a major way to every character and institution in Colernia. Whereas right now it's, you know, keep an eye on it, just in case. When the Hassenbachs are alone, Cordelia drops protocol very slightly, and that it, it's even worth mentioning amuses me so much. She's so perfect. But Klaus hands her a cup of wine, which she rarely drinks, because she is always in control. Mm -hmm. And so a single glass of wine is great excess for her. But technically speaking, when Klaus hands her the cup, it was illegal for a prince to hand anything to the ruling first prince of Prosser. I love it. There's a little legal detail that makes a lot of sense. Fun. Well, not fun. That law is there for a reason. But fun. It's cute. They they get to do a little a little bit of crime because they're a family. Well, Hassenbach famously abuses her power, so I'm That does sound like Cordelia. Wrong. <laughs> now you keep saying she's done nothing wrong. One of her biggest moments in this story, she steals money from a poor knight under her command. We're talking about and yet we stand. I'm talking about when one of the people under the jurisdiction of the first prince comes into the highest assembly and she walks and she up and steals money from him. <laughs> she steals money from him. She pickpockets when him. When she stands up on her broken leg. Yes. In the middle of an assassination attempt. Right. In order to silence the gods themselves. Or pardon. In order to silence an entire choir that she might dictate events while refusing the attempts of reality to bestow upon her the title she has earned by those efforts? Yes, I'm talking about when the first Prince of Proser engages in a little bit of petty larceny. That's very fair. <laughs> I'm she glad should you agree. Him back. I agree. Though, was that uh, permitted in the highest assembly? He didn't hand Might it to her. Might have just been confiscating it. He didn't hand it to her, so it's okay. She took it. Yeah. <laughs> so, glad we got that sorted out. Actually, he's not a prince, so it's okay for him to give her something. Oh, true. Okay, cool. Well, I don't know. He does earn that name, that title a little later on after that. That is so messy. <laughs> Let's continue to relitigate future chapters. Yeah, good idea. Sorry, not relitigate. Pre-litigate. There you go. But warmonger that she is, Cordelia plots with her general. Yeah, uh, there's there's a little bit of a discussion about when, or more importantly, if Proser should go to war with Prace. They're the big evil state proser is the big good state really the only good state left thanks a lot callow and makes a lot of sense really this is the way reality is built mm -hmm. and cordelia says well klaus says i'm not sure we could we should go to war with Prace. they've got black and grim good good two people to focus on but Prace has a lot going for it and cordelia's response is we can no longer afford not to be at war with the empire it's that is an extreme stance to take in that war is expensive in a lot of ways and war with Prace especially so because of how Prace works and war with militia especially so because of who militia is and uh, it's obviously war is always the thing that is done when you can't afford to not do it anymore when it's the cheaper option but for that to be the case with Prace this soon after two decades of civil war in Proser. Cordelia is playing the long game. She's reading the situation masterfully and is, I mean, taking a big chance, although she's cheating as we learn soon, but it's, uh, it's, it's a big swing for sure. 
we can no longer afford to not be at war is such a great line. And then she follows it up with something that's true, but also something that's wrong. Hmm. And for all that, you worry... Pardon. And for all that you worry about the likes of the Black Knight, Militia is the real danger. I'm, admittedly, Militia is the real key to unlocking the doom of the entire world. But both of them are right. Those are different battles for different Hasenbachs. Klaus does need to worry about the Black Knight because he is the mastermind. Sure, Grem One-Eye is a better tactician, but Black did the good move of having Grem One-Eye plus his powers. But Cordelia... She wages war against Militia for the rest of the series, except when she wages war with Militia. It's, they're different fights, and neither is more important than the other, except if Militia were stopped now, the dead king wouldn't have, even. Yeah. Which makes Cordelia double right. Which is about her standard level of correctness. Yeah. But she would only be 1.8 right if it weren't for the help of a family member, other than Klaus. Cordelia's, we find, we find out, related to a cousin with... Agnes, the auger, who performs auguries, and auger is what it's to be. She digs, she digs really good holes? She, she seems to dig things out of holes, really. Ah, okay. And I just want to note one line here, very minor, in here somewhere. Her cousin Agnes, from one of the Hassenbach branches, came into the name of auger. It says her cousin, but then from one of the Hassenbach branches, which suggests to me that this isn't necessarily... And there may be actual lineages laid out later that make it clear that this is the case. But it sounds to me like, oh, this isn't her father's sibling's daughter, but rather well, this is a relative. And at a certain point, every relative is a cousin, as the word used to generally mean and still occasionally does sure. now. And that is a pretty solid view of royal households in many times and places. It is it is worth remembering though that Agnes and Cordelia are close. Like later on, they, I, if I recall correctly, there's references to them like either growing up together or spending time together as children, and that they are very close at a personal level, not just an official level. Yeah, when you're the two kids at the forefront of some rat's extermination war, sure. the bond. Yeah, fair enough. We we get uh, Cordelia's take on Prace as a whole, and. Uh, she's surprised, honestly, that Prace is behind the, uh, what does she call the Pravis Bank? Pavris? Let me find this. That Prace is behind the Pravis Bank, because, which is the, as you called it, the shell company that's been funding the Civil War here. Um, because Prace, historically, is not the kind of state that does anything noteworthy on a grand scale, uh, on a strategic scale, I guess I should say. Uh, she lumps all of the tyrants of Prace into two categories, the laughable and the terrifying. You've got the and laughable. she's right. She, oh, she's absolutely right. You've got the laughable, which is basically every dread emperor and empress of Prace. And you've got the terrifying, you know, the militias and the triumphants. But May she never return. Thank you. But the laughable, there's a great, uh, a great reference here to... Um, uh, Sinistra, uh, a Dread Empress, or Dread Emperor? Her. There's a Dread Empress Sinistra who attempted to, and I quote, steal Hallow's weather. And I have to say, as goofy as it is, as goofy as what the Dread Empresses and Emperors got up to, that is a plan I can respect. Not have better weather in Prace, not take a storm, no. Just steal their weather altogether. We'll just take Kala's weather over here. Obviously, it failed. Devastated half of Prace. Whatever. The important point is he, that the Dread Empire is not something that Proser needs to take seriously, except in the few instances where they do. Like, right now. Stealing the weather is really the perfect Pracey plan, because it's simultaneously stupid dumb, mm -hmm. simultaneously hilarious, and also a hugely apocalyptic scheme right it's ideal but at the end of the day there is only one truly terrifying dread tyrant in history with the possible addition now of militia we'll see what she becomes yeah and we get a little bit more context on why triumphant was so may she never return mighty why so feared why she has that phrase uttered in praise every time her name is said um we knew that she was successful in, I mean, the 
the epigraph of the epilogue of book one, she's got the world at her feet, ruined because she could. And here we find out some important context. She did that in a decade. She conquered all of Colernia, the only person to ever do that, which in this kind of setting is saying something because uh, you, you would expect a world conquest to be moderately successful, I don't know, every 50 years or so, so that the heroes have something to fight against. But Triumphant is the only person to have done it, and it took her 10 years. Colernia is a big place. It takes armies months to go places in Colernia. Colernia has some unbelievably powerful entities and states and organizations within it. And this Dread Empress from back in the day kind of just did whatever she wanted for a decade. Her power only lasted, or her, her legacy only lasted five years after she, uh, after she disappeared. But still, it's uh, wild to think about how unbelievably and incomparably successful she was in the history of Colernia. We have a problem, though. Oh? Who is the tyrant of praise? Militia. Who is the tyrant? Iris. What happens when you see a sentence like, the tyrant seeks to end Prosser? There's some, exactly. uh, some potential confusion there, huh? Yes. And that's okay. It rarely comes up. But Dread Emperor or Dread Empress being also called the Tyrant, capital T, is difficult and unwieldy. But I think that's good. I think it's intentional. That confusion here, that makes perfect sense coming from an augur who's very much in the Western, like Greek-style fortune teller who, who tells you what's coming in a way that has to be interpreted and the misinterpretation of which is the tragedy of the story. But in this case, both tyrants want to end Prosser, so I guess it's okay. Having played Tiresias in a college production of Antigone, I do want to point out that the problem isn't always that the augury itself is confusing. Sometimes the problem is that your ruler is an idiot and not Cordelia Hassenbach. Fair. But even even if the uh, prophecy isn't confusing, it's often phrased in a way that doesn't seem confusing until you look at it in hindsight which I think this one is probably, I think this one probably falls into that category. But the tyrant, perhaps plural, is far from the only entity trying to destroy Proser. I wish we saw more of the chain of hunger. Oh, me too, we, 100%. We are deeply blessed to have the scene in Keter with the battle against the Revenant rattling, but what a fantastic unexplored corner of the world which we need if we explored every piece of the world we hear about we would have very tattered borders but i want to know more cordelia tells us like all renians she was expected to man the walls if the chain of hunger tried to cross the grave again and i love that there's no exception for nobility and we see this going forward there's never an exception for nobility even when it comes to making the last stand Cordelia doesn't march with the armies because that isn't a way she can contribute usefully, but she does fight to defend a big mistake, but she fights for it and she's ready to. Klaus goes down fighting. Every Lycanese soul goes down fighting. There are entire principalities that break and run, but not the Lycanese. They're already dead and they keep going, but but not in the Dead King way. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah the... Uh, the... When things are truly falling apart at the end of the story, and we get those perspective shifts to the interlude chapters where we get the perspective shifts to um, the Lycanese holding the border, those are some of the most powerful, most epic moments in this story are these normal men and women led by a couple extraordinary individuals holding out against literally impossible odds it's phenomenal writing and i i absolutely adore those sections of this of this work like it's it an amazing, are a special breed it's an amazing story where when you start considering the beings that will fight yay unto and past death against impossible odds of that group the undead themselves are third on the list <laughs> yeah like second and only one force is truly unswayable and unstoppable. And much like real life, it is the people. 
workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your heads because you committed a thought crime. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to say Abby, but sure. No, because she tries to run. Yeah, fair. The intention does matter. I love her. I love to laugh at her, but intention matters here. Yeah, you're right. We uh, we get here shortly after this an instant of Cordelia being not wrong, but making an assumption without all of the details. And it's a fair assumption, but it doesn't quite reach the truth. She says, Six years of running battles and backroom deals, playing creation's most elaborate chatronge game against the tyrant in the tower. And sure, Cordelia, for the most part, you are correct. The, the first prince against militia, yes. It is elaborate, it's world-spanning, it's very, very complex, and involves everybody, basically all mortals on, on, the, on the continent. But most elaborate, she's missing some detail there. She's maybe second most, but in a world where the bard is running around, uh, I think there's, a, there's another layer above the, the squabbles of these two mortal states truly is as the children's rhyme goes first is the worst second is the best i yep (laughs) i guess that's true and gods forgive her but it had worked there was enough blood on her hands for a hundred butchers but it had worked you ain't seen nothing yet i love cordelia i love her so much but prosser runs red with blood before we are through yeah that these there is a density here of Cordelia making claims that seem very reasonable and true until you have all of the context. The her battle with the with the Dread Empress, big, not the biggest thing. Sure, you've got enough blood on your hands for a hundred butchers. Uh, there's more to come. And then in the next line, she says that the rebellion of the Lone Swordsman is a specific tool with one goal, and that is to get the Dwarif into the war. First of all, interesting that she's wielding all this political capital and and uh, physical wealth for that purpose. We don't really know much about the Dwarif yet. We get a nice reference to the Wardens coming up here. Uh, oh, sorry, the Wardens. We get a nice reference to the Watch coming up here, which is cool. But the fact that all of this is set up for such a small goal when... A few chapters or books from now, that is basically an afterthought. The Dwarf, from a political standpoint, not from a magical narrative weight standpoint, the Dwarf would be, you know, a nice addition to something. Uh, We just. That's the plan, though. They're going to be an addition. Sure. But it seems a pretty small. It's a fraction of what's going on here. We're looking at a Cordelia who's. Doesn't ha- who has a perspective based on what she can see from Prosa right now. There's a lot to come. Everything's going to change. The scope is going to increase many-fold. And for now, yeah, let's get those orcs from up north to help out. And why does she want the Jorah on her side? Because she is wanting to launch the 10th Crusade. Which is great. This whole thing is this this massive mastermind battle between these brilliant women and militia and uh, Cordelia vying for position. And then we're going to transition into a boxing match. They're chess boxing. Chess boxing? Yeah, chess boxing, where you play chess and also punch each other a lot. And More uh, like chatronge boxing, am I right? Oh, sorry, sorry. You're right. My, my apologies. Or chatronge pit in? Yes, that, that works. They want to play chatronge the pit? Um, that all said, Cordelia loved the Principate for all its flaws. At the end of the day, it remained the greatest force for good on Calernia, and though its history was full of mistakes and mishaps, Prosser was what kept the surface together. Cordelia, bear with me and forgive me, but Cordelia justifies means by their end. And I know there is another character, often active on this end of the continent, who does a similar thing also in the name of good, and whom I despise for it. But you must remember both that he is not hot, and also that Cordelia is acting to stop violence and death, and her violence and death is in the service of ending it. 
Can that justify this? I'm not here to debate that. The Grillgrim smothers a child, and Cordelia cannot stand that, and I am very attracted to her. So. And the third point to back up why she's better than the Grillgrim is she would hang him. She wants a world where he would hang. So That's so important. Because the Grillgrim that- doesn't want a world where Cordelia would hang, which is good, because if he did, we would hate him more. But <laughs> Also, may I just point out that even though monarchy, even though autocracy, oligarchy are totally invalid forms of government. Heck, republicanism isn't really a valid form of government. But though Cordelia is the enemy class, through and through, without any run to those colors, she upholds a democratic ideal that no one else will in her refusal of a name. Cordelia is a noble, but she refuses to allow the nobles who hold higher station to simply be higher being as they are in every other nation. And I think that's sick. Also, she's mommy. She's so mommy. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of her refusal, uh, one of the titles she claims after this, she refers to herself as the first Prince of Proser and the Warden of the West. And as a legal title, sure, but she... She's kind of the warden of the West. Let's let's not get carried away. We need to wait a few, several hundred chapters before we can start talking about that. She was the first Prince of Prosser, the warden of the West. Cordelia might be a Hassenbach by blood, but her mother had raised her to the ancestral words of the rulers of Hanofen, the old retort thrown in the teeth of the enemy when all its grand plans came to naught. And yet we stand. Which is the chapter title for what we were talking about earlier, where she robs a knight. And yet we stand is Cordelia's big moment. And it's here in her first moment. And it's where we end up at the end of the book, of the series, of the books. It's hard pretending that there's multiple books when it's just a series of web pages. But, ah! I'm, I don't know about you, I'm beginning to think this Erratic Errata fella is a pretty good writer. You know, I want to wait until we've read at least one more of his books. But between the first one and this prologue, I'm suspecting you might be right. But do you have... Oh, go ahead. Do you want to just go through the next couple of chapters, maybe the rest of this book? Uh, We've got started. We've got the momentum. We might as well finish it. All right. Let's go to the next one then. So chapter one is called... um... We'll get to those at a future date because unfortunately that is all the time we have for today. Next week, step right up and see for the first time ever an exclusive to PGTEE only... The tallest orc you've ever seen. A quartermaster by tradition only. And a horrible green barbarian. Wade in their blood, folks. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratus is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Erratus, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguideevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Season 2 Flourish was Handy Introduction 02.2 GLBML by Jeffrey Birch. Music for the epigraph was Clockwork Soldiers Orchestral Instrumental by Melody Aries Griffiths. It's a lot longer than you heard and worth checking out if you enjoy tunes. Crusade Flourish was Success Fanfare Trumpets by Pixabay. Laughter was Crowd underscore Laughing dot web by Pixabay. Yonder Sting was Dramatic Reveal by Serge Quadrado. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a p-g-t-e-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, 
our patron and liege, all with the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. And this week, a special congratulations to Compass with Hat's sister. I'm pretty sure it's no longer under copyright, but I'm afraid to play the birthday song. Next week, chapter one, Supply. I don't care what you mean by the words. If you call someone a rat battler, I am on their side. That's fair. Of course, as a former New Yorker, I've seen my share of rat battlers. But now, hold on. I'm mm-hmm. I'm concerned that the term didn't come through. What I said was rap with a p battlers. Oh. The the drow become I still respect rap yeah. battlers. Yeah, okay. As long as as long as we still respect them. <laughs> As a former New Yorker, I've seen my share of rap battlers. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Manhattan is wild. Uh, and I hear things about Brooklyn and Queens too, but I would never be caught there. 